Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello, and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. On the morning of July 18, 2014, Dan Markell, a prominent law professor at Florida State University, born in Montreal, pulled into his driveway in Tallahassee, Florida. He had just dropped his two sons off at the daycare and had finished his morning workout at the gym. It was 11.05 a.m. On his cell phone, he dialed the number at his son's charter school to get some information, but he interrupted the call to say, hang on, there's someone I don't recognize in my driveway. Two large bangs and a grunt were heard, and then nothing more. A neighbor heard the shots and saw a silver Toyota Purist beat off and saw the driver's side window smashed of Dan's Honda, with him in the seat, not responsive, and bloodied. He called 911, but Dan Markell was pronounced dead just 15 hours later. Eight years and four arrests later, this case is still a media sensation that I have been devouring online. The twists and turns and conspiracies that have evolved over these eight years hits all the true crime junkie points. A well-known and well-liked prominent victim, an acrimonious divorce and custody battle, in-law troubles, hired hitmen, a grieving family, and two young sons left fatherless caught in a media circus. Contributing to the circus is Florida's Sunshine Laws that were established to create transparency in local and state government agencies, but have given the media access to investigative reports, tapes, video footage, and full camera access into the courtroom. Information that, at least here in Canada, is not available until after the trial has concluded and is usually redacted to protect, to protect the names of parties that have given testimony but have not been arrested or charged. Not so in Florida. So if you Google Dan Markell, you will just that easily be granted full access to police interviews, tapped phone conversations, and witness testimony, all in its unedited and untested in court form. I personally am not comfortable giving theories and naming people as possibly involved in crimes without that information being tested in court. 
So today I am talking about Dan's case, and I'm fortunate to have Dan's mother, Ruth Markell, with me today to discuss her book called The Unveiling about her son's murder and her personal journey of grief and loss that has, is being released on September 20th. But before I bring Ruth in to talk more about Dan and his murder and some of the most recent updates on this case, I want to give you the basic rundown of Dan's story and where it's at in the courts today. But I'm not going to get into my opinion and theories, and I'm not going to ask Ruth to do that either. The information I am bringing you today is only information that has been put through the court system and tested for its accuracy, so to speak. If this case piques your interest, Um, which I'm sure that it will, then I encourage you to get your hands on a copy of Ruth's book when it comes out. I have a feeling based on the attention that this case has been getting that it's going to sell like hotcakes, so maybe pre-order a copy. I think it's always best to get the story from the people closest to it, and I imagine it's going to be a riveting and heartbreaking read. There are a number of shows that have covered this story. I know that Wondery Season 1 of Over My Dead Body is dedicated to this case, and Dateline did an episode called In-Laws and Outlaws, but they were both done sometime before the latest updates, and 2022 has been a big year in this case, so you'll be getting the details on that here today. Dan Markell was born in October 1972 and grew up to be a very accomplished law professor. Dan lived and grew up in Toronto, but attended his university education at Harvard and other prominent and distinguished institutions around the world. Dan married Wendy Adelson in a lavish ceremony in February 2006. Wendy was a pretty and charming clinical law professor and child advocate who also worked at Florida State University. Wendy had come from a family with a successful family dental practice in Miami, which was run by her dad and older brother Charlie. Dan had met Wendy while he was working in Washington, and they had moved to Tallahassee where Dan became a law professor at Florida State University, and so Wendy could finish her degree in Florida. They had two sons together, one born in 2009 and the other in 2010. Wendy filed for divorce in 2012, and that was finalized in 2013, and they shared custody of the two boys after that. By that July of 2014, when Dan was killed, He had a new relationship that he'd started and things were going really well for him. He'd shaken off the divorce. He's got a very good job, a supportive group of friends. He's not into anything shady or sketchy and it's all sunshine in the sunshine state with Dan. So when he was killed and the story hit the news, it exploded on the national media because Dan was a very popular and well-regarded professor. This would become one of Florida's most high-profile cases. Police are a bit baffled because they could tell it was a close-range hit, so he definitely was the intended target, but robbery had not been a motive, so they're really struggling to put the pieces together. And Dan's family was left shocked and grief-stricken with really nothing but questions about who could have murdered their son in broad daylight and why. A year later, they still didn't have any leads after digging into Dan's entire life. He was not a drug user. He didn't have a gambling problem. His students looked up to him. They just couldn't uncover any motive that Dan might have brought. No dark recesses of Dan's life were found. Crime Stoppers offered a reward, and and there was an independent award as well of $100,000 that was offered for information leading to an arrest in the case. The police did release a photo of the silver Toyota Purus that Dan's neighbor had seen that day peeling out of the driveway. It was like a grainy photo, possibly from somebody's security camera, but those silver eco-friendly cars are kind of a dime a dozen in Florida. It wasn't until May 26, 
2016, two agonizing years for Dan's family that the police arrested two suspects, Sigfredo Garcia and Luis Rivera. The police had tracked the silver purists down and discovered that Luis and Sigfredo had rented the car in Miami and left a trail of hotel stays in their wake, winding up in Tallahassee on July 17th. There was evidence taken from their cell phones, banking records, and security camera footage capturing their journey and linking them to the crime. They had followed Dan Markell that morning during his errands until they could get him alone at his house. Thankfully, they had waited until his two boys were no longer with him. But why? Who were these guys anyways, and what connection could they possibly have to Dan Markell? He was a law professor, He was, and this is not a practicing law, um, like a criminal attorney with a trail of disgruntled clients. Luis Rivera, it turns out, was actually already serving time in federal prison since later in 2014 for racketeering charges. It turns out that he was the leader of the North Miami Latin Kings gang, and Garcia was one of his underlings. So what would a Latin drug gang have to do with a professor of law and father of two boys? Well, after some phone tapping and the magic of undercover operations, they discovered that a woman named Catherine Meg Banua, Kathy to her friends, and otherwise known as Garcia's on-again, off-again girlfriend and mother of two of his children from Miami, had suddenly received a large sum of money right after the murder of Dan. She was arrested on October 1st, 2016 and charged with murder as a co-conspirator. The prosecution and the investigator's theory was that Kathy had been hired to act as a go-between to get Garcia and Rivera to go to Tallahassee and kill Dan Markell. The trials for Catherine Meg Banua and Sigfredo Garcia were combined and took place in October 2019. Now, Rivera had taken a plea bargain for 19 years um, to run concurrent with his other sentence that he was already serving. But again, why? What connection did Kathy have to Dan Markell and who hired her? During the trial for Kathy and Garcia, the prosecution alleged that Kathy had a personal relationship with Charlie Adelson during one of Kathy and Garcia's off-again periods. Charlie Adelson is Wendy Adelson's big brother. Wendy Adelson, as you will remember, is the ex-wife of Dan Markell, hence the connection Kathy to Markell. Louis Rivera alleged in his jailhouse confession with police that Kathy was, quote, the woman in the middle of doing everything and that he didn't know Dan or any of the Adelsons, but that he had heard that it was, quote, because the lady wants her two kids back. She wants full custody of the kids, end quote. The prosecution at Kathy and Garcia's trial alleged that Charlie had hated Dan Markell and that his hatred for Dan hit its breaking point in 2014 because... Before he was murdered, Dan Markell had filed a motion that would have prevented Donna Adelson, Charlie and Wendy's mom, and the boy's maternal grandmother from having unsupervised visitation with the children because of disparaging remarks that she was allegedly making about Dan to the boys, and because Wendy had petitioned the court in 2013 to move back to Miami with the boys and that Dan had entered a motion, a motion to deny that and the court had sided with Dan. So the theory is that Charlie had ordered the hit on Dan because he thought that it would help his mom and his sister. Garcia was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, no parole, plus another 30 years for the conspiracy charges. Now the trial portion that was for Kathy, remember they were combined, that portion ended in a mistrial with a 10 to 2 vote to convict. 
all of the Adelsons, including Charlie, deny any involvement in the murder of Dan Markell. Then we get to the most recent events. On April 21st, 2022, Charlie Adelson was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and solicitation to commit murder. Wendy and Donna Adelson have also been named as co-conspirators, but unindicted. So in legal mumbo-jumbo, I, th I think it sounds worse than it really is. Basically, they will be witnesses at Charlie's trial, but they have not been arrested or charged with anything. It's just a strange legal term. I've tried Googling it, but it was too complicated for my little brain to understand. Kathy's second trial started on May 16th of 2022, and 11 days later, she was found guilty of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and solicitation to commit murder. Uh, she was also given a life sentence in prison with no parole. So that's where we stand as far as the murder case. Obviously, there is a lot more to the story, and the evidence and the theories are all really quite fasc fascinating. But as I said, I'm not going to get into those theories and the other kind of stuff that's out there about this case because Charlie's trial is still pending and he needs to have his day in court. After the arrests of Garcia, Rivera and Kathy, Ruth found herself in a difficult and heartbreaking situation besides grieving the loss of her son. For whatever reasons, Wendy Adelson cut off contact between Ruth and her grandsons, and because Florida has no recourse for grandparent visitation rights, she had no access to her grandsons, and they are really all that she has left of her son. Now, she, with the help of Senator Jeff Brands, introduced a bill in 2020, which didn't pass, but in 2022, the Speaker of the House, Chris Sprouls, organized the Grandparent Initiative, which was... Um, which was passed in the legislature and signed into law in June 2022, called the Markell Act. It enables grandparents the ability to petition the court for access to their grandkids under certain criteria. So as you can tell, 2022 has been a big year in the case of Dan Markell. So with all those details in mind, I want to turn to talk to Ruth Markell, who I mentioned is Dan's mom and the children's paternal grandmother. She has been on this painful journey for eight years now, and uh, there's yet another trial that she has to go through, and I think that she has a very important message for us to think about, that it isn't just the murder of a loved one that causes trauma, but the arrests, the trials, the many inevitable delays, the verdicts, and the constant reliving of events all really take their toll on a family. But she is hopeful that through her book and continuing to share her story, that she can help others with grief or trauma. She's also become an advocate for victims, and she's really just an amazing lady, and I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to speak with her. Nice to meet you in person. Same thing here. Glad to meet a nice Canadian face. <laughs> That's right. Yes, another fellow Canadian. First of all, I want to say how I'm truly sorry about the loss of your son, and, and not just the loss of Dan, but also what has happened with your grandchildren. I don't have grandchildren myself yet, but um, I know the relationship that my mom uh, had with has with my kids and with my sister's kids. And so I know that that's you know, a very special relationship and to have that as sort of an added trauma to the trauma that you've already been going and what's going through for what must feel like forever. It's eight years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just in, it's just an incredible loss. And I'm, and I'm just very sorry to, to have to meet you under these circumstances. Thank you. I accept your condolences. 
So I guess to start, can you tell me a little bit about Dan, about what he was like as a kid, as a father, and just as a man? Dan, Dan was a personality of many fields, as you would say. Uh, so he's born in Montreal. So I'll give you the Canadian story first. Sure. He's born, born in Montreal, and we all moved to Toronto by the time he was five years old. So he started school in um, actually kindergarten in Ontario. And uh, as a little preschooler, my famous story is that he's Dennis the Menace. With people always say he had such legal acclaim, so much brains. I said, yeah, it blossomed a little bit later because at the beginning, he, all he did is love comics. He loved a stepladder when he was young and a broom and a pail and a mop. And that was his preschool. Uh, I don't want to say his education. That would not be nice. But, but, his, but his, pre, his preschool toys. Yeah. And, and he was very, very rambunctious. And uh, he later, he later, um, by ten years old, he he settled down. And um, actually, they had a um, an aptitude test in one of the schools that he was attending. And they called me in and they said, you know, he's he only has an A minus or an A. He had the highest aptitude test we ever have. Kind of, when is he going to bloom? And I said, well, let's give him one more year. Not that A minus is bad, but just yeah. the idea. They brought it to my attention. So that, so his preschool, um, you know, in young behavior, but he read, he loved comics. So that was his early, his early, early childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously he grew up to become, ex- well, extremely intelligent and, and very accomplished. Um, and he went to Harvard as well. Is that, is that where he got his law degree was through Harvard? No, Danny had decided, this is now he's, after 10, around 12 and 13, he really, uh, really, really uh, more than settled. He knew where he wanted to go. He was very determined. And as a Canadian, he already said right away, he wants to just attend Harvard, Yale, uh, or Princeton. And we said, not that we did, we didn't discourage him because we knew there was that possibility that he would go, but we wanted him to have a, what we call a backup plan, have have something here, you know, for Canada, that kind yeah. of thing. Anyway, he did that, but he did get into Harvard. So he went to Harvard Law School undergrad. Okay. He then went for a year. Uh, he did a fellowship in Israel, and then he went to Cambridge, England, uh, and he got another master's in philosophy, and then went back to Harvard Law School. He would have stayed in university his whole life. He loved. Oh yeah, he loved learning. Yeah. And then, well, and then he, yeah, he became a professor then, really. Like that's the, correct. Yeah. No, no, he first worked in Washington. He clerked for a judge. He did all of these sort of really, you know, things that make people have an advantage in, in the law profession. Yeah. So basically, he clerked for a judge. And then his first real job, not the non-academic job, he worked in Washington uh, for a firm that did uh, appellate work for the Supreme Court. So he had really tremendous law credentials and he published a book and many many articles I mean anybody you know just has to look up his name but I'm most proud of him as a father yeah the the he had two young boys and um, he was he was just unbelievable with them he 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 uh, I think because I told you he was wild when he was younger so he had this still this childlike behavior in him yeah. let's call it and what he did is he, he created a clothesline across his whole living room and he hung up all their artwork. So when you walked into this house, it was like you were in preschool decor. So yeah. that was sort of his his whole. But fathering, 
first of all, I respected him so much as a father and really watched him love his kids. But I think that was the height of his own life, too. Yeah, we, I've seen pictures with him and, and the boys. are, And I just, yeah, you can see it that he just he he got down on their level with them to, right. to connect with them in that way. What do you think it is about Dan's case that has gotten so much media attention over the years and really right from the beginning, like even before the sort of the details of the the plot kind of came out? What do you think it is about his case in particular that's been so intriguing to, to others? Well, I think before the intrigue, we have to give Dan a lot of credit, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that. So I wrote, I mentioned that he published a lot, but Dan in 2005 started something that's called Prof's Blog. So it's P-R-A-W-F-S Blog, B-L-A-U-G, before okay. anything came out. So Facebook started at Harvard around 2000, you know, 2004. Yeah. He started the blog 2005. Facebook then came public. So you have a whole group of young students and young lawyers and an international acclaim that have grown up with him, if you see what I'm saying. You know, he was young because he loved social media, even Facebook, sure. you know, for his personal family. So I think that really stay, set the stage that this was an important person. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, um, you know, so he was in Tallahassee, Florida at the time. And they really didn't have yet, later on, they had a few cases of these kinds of criminal cases. They had other things, you know, related to murder and drugs and so forth. But this was already, you know, quite, quite unique. And, uh, and I think that just set the, you know, the pace going of uh, all the media from the beginning, because there were memorials all over the world for him. They were in New York. They were in, in England. Um, they were many in in, um, in California. So that created a lot of local a lot of local followings, and then all of the law writers. Because also, I was mentioned to you, he he produced so much legal writing and and all these conferences. So there was this sort of really grassroots uh, support or you know knowledge. Uh, and, and that just started the case before the case had its own drama. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. Yeah, and it certainly sounds like, from what I've read and researched, that 2022 this year has been uh, kind of a pivotal year as far as the case going. Um, Has there been a, a set date for Charlie's trial at this time? Not yet, not yet, but it's coming close. So we, what we do know is on September 9th, 
there's going to be an Arthur hearing. There is a request uh, for Charlie Adelson, who's the brother uh, of Wendy, who will um, ask for an Arthur hearing. So that's like a, they, he already was refused what they call, like, let's call it normal bail. This is kind of a special, a special request. He won't, he probably, I don't think he'll get it. Watch, ask me September 10th. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have another piece of information. And then they already had a case management uh, session and they're expecting the trial for Charlie Adelson to be between January and March of 2023. Okay. So it's very soon. Yeah. And will you and your husband be attending that? We will all be attending. Yeah. Dan's father and Shelly, my daughter, Dan's sister, we've attended all the other trials. Everything, yeah. We just finished. Actually, Catherine McManawa was one of the other people, and she yeah. just had her trial in May. And her second convinced. trial, right? Her second trial. The first trial was a mistrial, which was horrific. That was yeah, to go I... through. Yeah. That was really challenging, more than challenging. Yeah. Um, now, when you first learned, um, if you go back eight years to really the, that worst day of your life, you found out that Dan had been mur murdered. Did you get much information from the investigators in Florida? Were you going blind? Because I know in our own case with Taylor, because it was an active investigation, we had no information. So we didn't know what even what had happened to her until much later but I understand in Florida with the laws there that I mean they're just letting all kinds of investigative stuff out there for the media so they, these cases kind of get tried in the media before they even get to court but did they keep a lot of that information from you or were you able, like did you have to get it just from what was out there in the media no no I'll answer your question in two parts first the first part is what's available so the public records in Florida are very available and I don't not so much to the family but to the media so and they know right away like somebody can go up 12 a.m when you know maybe the prosecutor submits something and then the next morning one of the large newspapers because they're in Tallahassee will get it so the public records is is certainly um, a really big difference and very very early now that doesn't affect us so much because normally we did know and I'll back up in a second uh, certainly what the major plays were. So when, when Danny was first murdered, I was actually in Montreal and, um, and Shelly was in Toronto. I had, I had an event in Montreal and we had to group up and get to Tallahassee. And we did do that. And, and then Dan's uh, friends in Tallahassee, right away uh, on the day after he, he, he was murdered at 11 o'clock mm -hmm. on July 18th, 2014, he died. Uh, on uh, Jan uh, July 19th in the early uh, morning, like 2 a.m., and they had mentioned that already. And then as soon as we got to um, Tallahassee, when the whole family group, uh, we met right away with the Tallahassee Police Department. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they basically, from the beginning, told us whatever they knew, which at that moment was that they were suspecting it was murder. They didn't think it was a random shooting. And they had already interviewed, you know, quite a few people. They had no no knowledge yet of any specifics, but they they did really inform us um, at that moment of whatever they knew. Okay, so you knew fairly early on that they were at least onto leads that were leading to these two gang people that they had. Like, did did you no. learn quickly that 
they had been hired or? No, 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 nothing happened for a while. So I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you. When we met with the police, they had no knowledge of anything or anybody, but the only thing they did know was that the next door neighbor thought he saw a Prius. So it was the car. And and they, and that was all we knew for pretty much the first the first year was green or white or whatever the next door neighbor had really expressed. His name is James Geiger, and thank God he saw something. Yeah. And then it took a whole year when the police announced that the first year anniversary of then, and the media already had started. So I think the police, in their own way, you know, set a press conference where they had at least something to say. But we yeah. were in contact with them before. Okay. And and at that point, they announced uh, that they knew it was a car and they because nobody knew what they knew from the initial conversation with with uh, James Geiger. Uh, we just knew they were tracking a car, but we didn't know yet it was a name and a color and so mm -hmm. forth. And that was their first year con um, basically conference. And then the, on to the second year was where, um, you know, they they were active from day one, like looking. Uh, they they didn't necessarily um, share yet with us, I mean, who the suspects were, but many people had suspicions, but they interviewed intensely. And from the interviews that they did, you know, they already had some strong, nothing was evidence yet, it's not evidence, but, but some strong inclinations of, you know, some of the directions to further examine and further look at, you know, where they can get some more criminal uh, information and we in that period of time uh, so you know there's crime stoppers right so yeah. you know a lot of leads a lot a lot of leads and then there was also um, uh, some of Danny's friends did a very nice thing they they put out a very large reward and that you know was to create incentive so there was there was certainly information coming in not not they were I'm not saying they were facts I'm just saying yeah yeah there was a lot of information and a lot of people, uh, you know, there's a couple of people who were also said they did it and they had to go look in the basements of certain people. And, you know, it wasn't true, but I'm just showing you. They, yeah. had, they had a lot of, you know, running around, which was not conclusive in the first phase. Yeah. And so when when you learned that they had arrested two people um who were directly related to the killing of dan was that for you was it a, like was it a moment of a elation that you were happy or did it just kind of bring all the everything back for you so before there was an arrest to zigfredo garcia yeah. who was the first arrest um luis rivera was a little bit later like 10 days later but garcia's arrest um we had been by in the in the six months before the arrest, uh, we we were in touch with the police continuously. In fact, I kept that as my particular profile in the family, and uh, we started to sense. I did. The others weren't there yet, but I sensed a little difference in in you know just in some of the tone of uh, you know the major uh, police uh, inspector and investigator. And I and I sort of felt like we're maybe getting close, but I had no in, no concrete information, other than he had devoted a lot of his personal his personal work time. I mean, his private time. Mm -hmm. His his assignment became much uh, more intense yeah. towards towards getting on on this arrest. So there was like certain subtle, subtle, subtle cues. 
um, and um, and then and then the arrest really the arrest happened overnight, like uh, at late at midnight, uh, actually. And I got a call uh, that they just arrested Zacredo Z- Garcia, and then I told everybody else. Everybody else at that moment was still in shock. I yeah. I had sort of been me personally only like a little bit. Uh, a sort of prepared, you know, where, like it, it wasn't a premonition. It was not fact, but it was, in, you got a feeling of intent. Was there a particular turning point in your journey of grief where you decided to turn that into advocacy? So I'm going to back up and this gets into the book. Okay. So the, sure. uh, the book is called The Unveiling, a, a mother's, a mother's reflection on um murder because the murder is the first part the grief and trial life and the reason i chose that title it's very significant so we're going back about a year before the arrest um in the uh, jewish tradition after a person is buried we have a ceremony or ritual which is called an unveiling which what it is really is that when a tombstone in our religion is placed at the site of the grave site there's an inscription on the tombstone on the tombstone itself, and there's a covering like a like a curtain. And when you have the actual um, service or ceremony of sort of really putting um, the tombstone down where guests are invited, okay, that is called the unveiling. And then when you lift the curtain and you see what's the inscription. That's part of what that service is about. Now, for me, up until the point of the unveiling, I was very sad. I was in a daze. I was in shock, like every other person who goes through murder. But I hadn't started the real grief yet. Mm -hmm. So for me, the unveiling itself, the ritual of the service itself was, you know, the expression, putting the nails in the coffin. It literally was, for me, the finality of having having a tombstone right on top of the gravesite, like yeah. this is this is not happening any other way. In other words, we are done. Yeah. So that on a very personal, emotional aspect started my largest part of the grief sort of experience, the the main one. Now the other reason I called the book The Unfailing, which re- relates to this same stage, is really to show the public, lift the curtain, lift the veil. What is it like to be a victim? Mm-hmm. What is the experience of the family going through? And, and especially in a, this case is sensational in the sense that, you know, Dateline has done it. 2020 has done it. The yeah. Canadian audience might not be as familiar, but it's a very big American mm-hmm. story. There was a podcast, you know, which had over 10 million people, you know, by Wondery over my dead body. Yeah. So the case has had tremendous and I say this positively, media exposure, but behind the scenes and, and everybody, and it has multiple conspirators and so forth and drama, but behind the scenes, we're suffering. And, and that is what I want to talk about. And especially today, it's even worse, you know, just the, the American school shootings. Here mm-hmm. in Canada, you have all the indigenous stories now with the remains. You have the pandemic in, in the States over a million people are in loss right now, you know, that kind of thing, like you experienced and you know what it's like, you've been through it and, and, and it's, it's a horrific experience. And that's what the book is about. Let's, let me show 
the public, what is it like to be a victim? What is it like to go through the trial life? What is it like to see the perpetrators in front of you in a courtroom, okay, yeah. and, and so forth? And, and, and that's the intention of the book. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because that's the exact reason I started the podcast was to to show people that there are there's these huge ripple effects that take place after the murder of I mean, maybe one person, but it affects so many other people and that, that our life sentence starts the day that they die, regardless of whatever the perpetrator winds up getting. Um, that it really is kind of a life sentence and that it's traumatic. So I, you know, I really, it takes a lot of courage, I think, to put your, really your, your thoughts and your feelings in that, that journey down on paper. And I, I know that you were, you're a writer, you know, anyway, so I, I imagine that for you is kind of a, was it sort of like journaling for you to sort of get that, those feelings out? Not, not exactly. It's funny because, so I'm a writer. I wrote a lot of books in my, in the 1986 period on women's advancements in organizations and leadership. Uh, I, I had a very uh, nice, successful management consulting firm in Ontario. So my perception of myself, although this is my 10th book, this is not that writing is not the core of my identity or my career. Uh, and this was very different. This is not, you know, writing a management book, a self-help book, which has charts and guides and yeah. so forth. This is hard to tell. This, this is a big story to work on and, and to tell it. So the writing, of course, helps. But the, the way I normally go about it, I started to just say, because there was so much publicity at the very beginning, so much media. Yeah, I I just kept, you know, almost like a box with the articles in it, like sort of to have a chronicle. Really, it was it was like, you know, the calendar of events related, you know, to the first hearings and so forth. But I didn't write personal until the pandemic. So in other words, I knew I'm writing a book and all I did at the very because this is the eighth year. Right. So for six mm -hmm. years. I basically, you know, created this, you can call it, some people call it a creative box. I call it the box of records of, you know, what was really happening and so forth. And I didn't journal as an emotional journal, journaling. I knew I was writing a book, but it was not necessarily uh, the way this book uh, sort of turned out. But this is a much more personal story mm -hmm. and, and, and my story as a victim versus, I would call my previous writing you know, not that anybody categorizes it, but certainly more what I would call professional writing. Mm -hmm. you know? Did you find it a, a, a sort of a healing process in in the end? Like, did it did it help you or were you already like you were sort of through most of the healing process and you just wanted to share that, you know, the how you got there with people or was it the writing it was part of your healing? I, I would actually answer you neither. And the reason I say it was neither healing, I don't feel that I healed for different reasons. We're going through a criminal trials now. So this is eight, eight years, well, six years, not eight, six years into trials, to hearings, to appeals, to new arrests, and so forth. So now we're dealing now with the trauma of trials, right? So before I the before was the murder, the trial of the traumas has not even started to, of the, of the, sorry, the trial of the, the trauma of the trials has not even started um, to heal. Yeah. And so 
the the book is just really I it, it gave me a you know a sense of purpose, you know, find meaning from grief. That I would say it certainly did do for me. And and I was also I'm a person who stays very active. And for the pandemic, as you know, in Canada, we were we were really locked in. I knew I'm writing a book right after uh, the 2019 trial, right after Garcia's trial. And then it was January 2020. And, you know, March by March, we were all back in our houses. Uh, so there was a good project for me and a good time to write. A yeah. hard time. You mentioned in the, the jacket of your book that you had a, a murder coach. Can you tell me a little yes, bit about that? I, I was really fascinated by that. I had actually, and he's and it's Canadian story, which is unusual because a lot of my supports are certainly Canadian, but there's a lot of Americans, experts and supports. So yes, it, it's a story of um, Adam and Hank. He's he was murdered. His, he's there from Winnipeg. The okay. father, the father of Adam and Hank, his name is Abe, and my son was uh, he was. Um, not Adam, the, the Adam's brother-in-law was the best man at my son's uh, wedding. So as soon as uh, Danny Dan was murdered, they helped out. They were like a family, like kind of, you know, moved in to, to lift you up, so to speak. I don't mean yeah. to risk your spirits, but to certainly share. And so the father now, Abe and Hank, was amazing as support for me. First of all, as we were waiting, he would, um, you know, and you'll see it in the book, because I, I put his emails in there. It's fascinating. Um, he would, you know, kind of encourage me to know we're going to wait for a few years. He was, I think, already on their 10th or 11th mm -hmm. year, and they had to go all over internationally. He was amazing, you know, searching uh, for the person, the evidence. And then he kept on, as he, he knew our process where we were. And he just kept on kind of encouraged me to write. And we had, I had met him and we had some phone calls um, and so forth. So you have to read the book to see how the murder coach uh, really helped. And I inserted in some of the hard parts of the trials, you know, his messaging and it in the book. And it, it's amazing because it, it's, a, it's an amazing experience to actually have a personal, you know, almost guide to, you know, walk you through some of the most difficult moments and what to expect. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, victims could use that almost like the court services could, could be offering something like that. I, I'm really looking forward to reading that. Um, yeah, about that been, in here. The States has um, in Florida, actually the victim liaison person, we from coming out of first from the Tallahassee police department and later from the prosecutor's office, they play a very important role. Um, because they also guide you through what sentencing is like, writing your victim impact statement. But the kind of what I would call the murder coach, it's a very different, it's a much more personalized um, experience. And and actually, you know, when if everybody feels like they want to give, there's a family right now who I'm giving some encouragement to. I don't know what I call it, coaching. And there was another case in the, in Tallahassee. Uh, that just completed just before our case and she reached out to me so I wouldn't say there's there's um you know any kind of organized um uh, sort of organization there is something I just recently found that I should say this because there's something in the states I don't even know if it's in Canada uh, uh parents of murdered children mm -hmm. and um and I, I don't know yet I'm just starting to explore what 
what they offer, but there is an, there is some organization. So anything that can support the victim, as you know, the family, yeah, is is just so important. Yeah, we I've seen some of that um, here in Calgary with some. Uh, you, you almost kind of become a network <laughs> of, of right. victims because you know, of course, the stories get out in the media, so you know the the names or whatever, and then yeah, you kind of have that connection, and I, I think it does help to to have someone who's been through it um, to help. One of the things that I really want to talk about is that with your grandsons. So you went through a process of actually change because from what I understand in Florida, they do not have um, grandparents visitation rates at all. Like it's you don't even Correct. have the option Correct. of going to ask for that. Correct. Um, yeah, it's very restrictive rights. Yes. Yeah. So I guess I sort of want to talk a, a, a bit about that because that's kind of been a recent for you that you've had to to deal with um, sort of like what the process is of getting like a bill entered into law and sort of what that looks like and what that was like for you. And um, I understand that that has just now become law. Uh, and so then the other part of the question is, have you you know been able to see your grandsons recently? So I'll back up. So what happened the first two years after the um, the murder, we did see the grandchildren and I would go with my Canadian grandchildren, as I call them, the, who are older and and, and uh, the father, grandfather. We would visit, uh, you know, occasionally in, in Florida. And then after the arrests, you know, that changed. And so there was a six year period of when we were not allowed to see the children. And then after, um, and then, and people approached me, Americans. So, you know, we don't have the same mentality in Canada right away, write a bill, get it done. You know, this yeah. sort of, we don't, we don't politicize quite as quickly and, and so forth. And, uh, and so somebody said to me, you're going to need a bill, you know, to get some grandparent rights and so forth. And I'm sitting here, I'm in Canada. There's not even besides being in the States, besides being full of grief and everything else, it's early. I, 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 you know, write a bill in Florida, like was a real challenge. And then other friends, Americans at that time, just kept on coaching me. Um, you know, you're not just going to have to write the bill. You're going to need lobbyists. You're, so I got like the, like the pieces of the tools, let's call it, uh, were expressed to me. And then it was only after Garcia's um, trial where he got, um, that was the first one who was, you know, convicted for life. And it was only after his trial, we had a, a break for a weekend in Tallahassee between the um, completion of the trial, which gave him the life sentence to the death penalty, which was on the Monday. So I had a whole weekend and I and I went out and I it's, it's a funny story. And I'm in this hair salon and this young woman comes up and I can see she's Danny's age. And, you know, Danny lived in Tallahassee for 10 years. She's going to give you a hug. And I said, sure. Anyway, um, we met after for coffee and she says, what can I do for you? Now, up until that point, I never blurted out the words. I said, grandparent alienation. I think it was because the trial had ended uh, and there was, you know, some movement on the criminal side. I could kind of walk over to the advocacy side, you know, it was freed me up, I would say. But I didn't do it consciously. It just blurted out grandparent alienation. And she said, done. Then I didn't know, you know, who she, who she was or anything. And then she had explained to me that she worked in media and research and so forth in Tallahassee. She had quite a senior position in a firm. 
and um, and she knew, you know, the ropes, let's call it. And actually, I saw her in, in October, mid-October. And by January um, 2020, uh, Senator Brandis, actually, she had got the senator to organize to get it passed in the Senate. It didn't pass in the first year. So this is another thing. Mm. Anybody moving from grief uh, to advocacy, to promise, as I call it, and then to outcome, these are you know the stages of this. Um, you have to recognize that even though you'll try other things, they're not gonna happen overnight. So yeah. year one, which was 2020, we were not successful to finalize it. In 2021, we decided to get the bill language proper. So we did a workshop on bill language. We did not try to approach at all the legislature. And then in 2022, uh, we were very fortunate and um, the House Speaker, uh, Chris Bells, took it on to see that there was um, interest in both the Senate and, and in the House of Representatives. And it passed in the Senate unanimous, unanimously it passed in the House 100 to 3. I mean, amazing support. And what it is, it's very specific grandparent legislation. It's not something that opens up everything to all people. But what it talks about, it, there is visitation and very special circumstances where there's a deceased, a deceased parent and the other person, so the surviving parent, is implicated potentially in criminal or in a civil suit. And that allows them to, the grandparents now, to go to the court and ask for visitation. So it's very specific. It's not like grandparents yeah. anywhere and so forth, but it's a really big start and it's informally called the Markel Act. So this was yeah. exciting, really. Um, yeah, it's nice. I, I saw that it had it had passed and it was, um, it's it's unfortunate that it is so very specific, but like you said, at least it's a it's an opening. It's something that maybe can lead to to some other rights because I know that um, there's a lot of cases where grandparents have, for whatever reason, divorce, even where there's that well, and alienation, and uh, you know, just denying visitation and that kind of thing. So, have you? Since that law was passed, have you been able to have a hearing and, and get? No, not yet. No, we didn't have. What happened was um, in February of 2022, um, so Catherine McManus' trial was supposed to happen. It was later switched to May, um, May 2022, like a few months later. And the grandparent legislation was just really boiling and gelling, let's call it. And at that point, I got an email out of the blue from Wendy, that's the, the mother of uh, Danny's two boys, which are Benjamin and Lincoln, my two American grandchildren. And she um, said that she they were planning a bar mitzvah, which is a 13 year old yeah. event for Benjamin. And uh, she was gonna do it May 14th. This is just, just before the trial. So she said, you know, we said, yes, we're coming. And then as we talked more, I said, you know, maybe the, we haven't seen the boys for six years. Um, I said, maybe we should have like an ice cream or something just, just before yeah. the, the, the day before. So then she wrote back, if you would like an in-person visit, why don't you come in April? And um, we, we said, yes, we're delighted. 
we're coming. So we got on a flight, uh, uh, Phil, that's, you know, the grandfather and, and I, and we went 6.30 in the morning. And uh, we went and we met them, you know, just after, was that they, they attended like part of the afternoon school, but we met with them. And then we came back on, on a flight like the same day hmm. at, in the evening. And then, which we, we only got on the flight at, at 9 p.m. And um, so that takes us to Canada for like, you know, maybe 1 p.m., 12.30 a.m., whatever. And then in the morning, 6.30 a.m., I get a call from the FBI. Charlie Adelson is arrested. So this happened April Mm -hmm. 20th. April 21st is a big arrest in the case. And it's 24 hours. I mean, like the two biggest breakthroughs in this story, this crazy story, if you want to call it for what it is happened in 24 hours so 2022 as you sort of said earlier it's been a big marker yeah and just so many changes in the yeah. course of this journey yeah I, so the the boys are are they teenagers now or preteens yeah yeah you know, one is 13 exactly just turned and uh, the other one is is uh, gonna be 12 in October They're, so the other one's just a little younger yeah and did the visit go well like did they remember you and yeah yeah the vi- we couldn't have asked really for a better visit perfect um you know and, and it's funny because so my Canadian grandchildren are much older mm-hmm. um they're now even one is 20 20 20 22 19 and 16 and at the time I said to the 16 year old who's kind of closer in age I said, you, you think we can ask them to hug or whatever? Like, you know, you're walking in, you're strangers. Yeah. Anyway, she said, sure. But I didn't do it in a formal way. As they were coming towards us from the parking lot, you know, we approached them and, and, and you know, sort of did it in a cheerleader way. Can we give you a hug? And they, they did. And they, it was phenomenal because they both hugged, you know, to transfer over. Each one has to hug me. Each one has to hug Phil and, you know, back and forth. And, and that was the visit. You couldn't have asked for a better really visit yeah. under really, really extremely difficult circumstances. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that that went, went well for you. Cause I, you know, I know that that's ugh, six years, especially in that develop those developmental years. Oh, it's, it's, huge. it's huge. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope you get um, a lot more visits. Now, one thing I did want, and I don't know if you can t- talk much about it, but it's more just sort of clarifying. I know. So Charlie Adelson is going to trial and he's been arrested and charged with First degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and what what's the solicitation? Solicitation, and it's um, from the documents that I've read. It says that um, Wendy and her mom have been named as co-conspirators, unindicted. Um, do you know the legal? Like that sounds like legal mumbo jumbo there, and I don't understand exactly what that means. I know that there's no arrest made; they haven't been arrested, and they're not charged with anything, but why they name that like that <laughs> well there you know the the florida law the prosecutors you know have have ways in which they identify um you know different people who are this is a, known to be a conspiracy trial right right a situation so there's already three people who are in jail now yeah there there so and so like we i can't really answer the question until we know what's going to happen and so forth but but it's there's been uh, sort of a identified people as players in the situation uh, from day one. So or not quite day one, but from the time uh, of some of the earlier arrests. So I think well, let's just see how it plays out. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely got the feeling that there's 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 more to this story and more will come out. I mean, obviously, the Florida has released a whole lot of stuff that people could make up their own minds about, but I don't suggest that that's you know, what they do. I think it's better to have things tested in court. Do you have an idea in your mind of what you feel that closure will look like for you? Like, do you feel like you're getting, like, do you feel like, uh, it's hard to say, like, I know there's really no justice, but, you know, do you, do you sort of have like sort of a, a goal set in mind that like on this day when this happens, I will feel like I got closure? Well, we're waiting for justice and, and there's going to be a lot of still delays. We had five or six, you know, continuances or postponements in the earlier part between COVID. So I don't, I, I make a statement in another uh, place. You know, closure at this point is a word in the dictionary. It is not a reality at all. And we, we know we have trials. And, the, and, and as each trial happens, I mean, but the public doesn't recognize and Maybe this is part of why I'm writing the book is Catherine McDonough had just finished a trial, but they're already starting her appeal. So, right. so this, is, this is where the drama and the unfortunate part of the drama is you're a player in this drama, right? So this is not uh, giving you anything what looks like closure. And, and the public doesn't see, you know, a lot of the highs and lows of, you know, some of the behind the scenes uh, hearings, just like the bail. The bail is, you know, each person uh, is going to request bail. There's a hearing on the bail. Then there's, you know, a case management, as we I just mentioned before, for the next trial. So no matter what, this is, it's active. It's it's part of, I don't, it's not part of your life because it's not a good part of your life. It's roller coaster existence and so forth. So I, I don't have a vision yet um, of what the end can look like. We're still so just we are really in the middle of this journey yeah you're in yeah you're in the middle of it so you can't even talk about like forgiveness or any of those things you're just you're just yeah. not even there and I think that that's what's so interesting about your story and and why I'm looking forward to reading the book is that you know along with the podcast and that when I when I research the stories of course it'll say like okay and in May of this year this happened and then two years later this happened you're telling the story that sort of happened over time and you're telling it in like 30 30 40 minutes but the the family has had to like imagine living a year with knowing nothing or you know imagine what that feels like to know that that person that you you feel has committed this crime is now out on bail and they're going to be out on bail until the the trial and they're you know you have to see them at the grocery store so to be able to to hear the stories from the perspective of people that have had to live through and the in the trial process I think nobody talks about that I mean even when you watch shows like CSI they talk about DNA and all that but they're not talking about what it's like to sit and have adjournments and and the, those right. kinds of disappointments where you get yourself all ready, like, okay, today's the day, we're going to at least know this. And then they say, oh, we put it off for two, three months. That's right. And that happened during COVID more than two, three times. And other stuff, really, and other, you know, other situations where they wanted to put uh, the trial of uh, Catherine McDonough and Garcia uh, together. That was like a split decision. We already were like, your bags are packed. And we just had another one from the actual continuance from uh, February to May. So that's what it's like. It, it really is um, 
you know, more than day to day. I, I call it, you know, it's funny how I use sometimes these descriptions. It's a roller coaster. It's a seesaw. It's a circus. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is what it feels like. Okay, so tell me specifically the book, the the title, where when it's coming out, and where people can get a copy, and if if it's possible to pre-order a, um, a copy, because I have a feeling it's going to be going like hotcakes. So um. I'm delighted to tell you all the information. So the book is called The Unveiling: A Mother's Reflection on Murder, Grief, and Trial Life. It's already available on on Amazon to pre-order, okay. and it's coming out. September 20th, so it's really around the corner, not even a month, and, uh, and I'm very excited, and I hope your listeners will all uh, go out and pre-order it or rent it, and it's also available, I really should say this, it's going to be, uh, there will be an audio by recorded books, okay. and it'll be available also in digital uh, by um, uh, Kobo and I, I believe uh, Kindle as well. Okay, well, well, good for you. I mean, I'm really, like I said, I know it takes a lot of courage to, to put yourself out there. And, and, uh, well, and with the way things are looking, there might be a sequel (laughs) to to it, unfortunately, but it's, uh, you know, I really and I appreciate you coming on to talk about what you've been through. And and then to, you know, of course, to tell us about your book. I mean, I think I I think everyone's gonna be excited to read to read it. Thank you so much. And I, uh, Hope that all of this gives you some support and solace as well. I'm I am uh, very supportive of people who and you, you're going through this yourself. But there's we have to give voice to the victim experience. That's the message too, right? That's part of my message. And like I said, this case has a lot of sensationalism in it, and so much uh, you know already existing coverage. But this we who have experienced. Uh, this terrible experience, which you have shared, um, it has to kind of let the public know a little more. That's really, you know, one of the, one of the things, the emphasis that there's so many people who are, who are in loss right now. Thank you again so much to Ruth for sharing her story. Uh, again, her book comes out on September 20th and is available today for pre-order on Amazon. And thank you to you for listening And I will be back again next week for another case. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? 
Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.